We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hi friends, and welcome back to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 241. This is one of the most incredible guests that I have had on the podcast. She is a recent author with the book Milo's Eyes, which is a love story between her and her horse Milo in their journey together, overcoming seriously staggering odds. Our guest has been ranked among the country's leading amateur equestrians. When she was three years old, she was diagnosed with two rare immune disorders— juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, which inflames her joints and really attacked her eyes and eventually led to her blindness. By the time she was 30, she had lost her left eye and most of the vision in her right eye. Regardless of her lack of vision, she continued to ride and compete at the highest level of the sport in the Hunters, competing in one of the most competitive divisions of the horse show, which was the 3-6 Amateur Owner Hunters. She is the only legally blind equestrian in America who jumps horses over three-foot six fences. She has been ranked among the top 20 amateur riders four times, and she has led the country twice. She was ranked as the nation's top adult hunter rider when she did the three-foot height, and in 2007, she was the top amateur owner rider at the three-foot six height. While this took so much planning and strategy and determination— Our guest could not do this without the help of her lovely once-in-a-lifetime horse, Milo, who she wrote a lovely book that is now available. But without further ado, I would love to welcome our guest today to talk more, Lissa Bachner. I would love to talk about Milo's eyes. I'm so excited to hear more about kind of how it came to be. Um, But first, would love to hear how you first found yourself in the equestrian world. I found myself (laughs) thrown into the equestrian world because my mother was an equestrian. She was a dressage rider and um, she had a farm in a big barn, actually big lesson program in Great Falls, Virginia. And I was a miserable child. Um, They didn't know that I was, I was born with a disease and I was so young. I, I wasn't able to voice that I couldn't see or I was having pain or headaches. And so Um, the only time I was, would stop crying was when they would put me on a horse. So I was on a horse when I was young and pretty much just stayed on. So I wouldn't cry anymore. How old were you when you were first put on a horse? Probably about two and a half or three. Wow. I I actually have a picture of it (laughs) and uh, it's so funny, but yeah, I think I was uh, tiny. And of course I'm on a the huge chestnut horse that a friend of my mom's own. So, yeah, I don't know why you always wind up on the biggest horse when you're right. Oh my gosh. Wow. So as you were growing up, tell me a little bit about at the point in time in your life where you did realize, or your parents did realize you had that rare condition. I was, uh, about four I think, I mean, it was soon after. So really three and a half, four. And, and when I was born, I, 
I really didn't see very much out of my left eye. That was the the worst, the two. And, um, and, and it, my vision began to diminish quickly. And so my mom began to point things out and I wouldn't be able to see them. And so there is that moment when you're a child and adults are pointing things out to you and you're saying, I don't understand what you're talking about, or I don't see it. And they first think, well, you're just not very bright. And then they realize, no, you actually really can't see. And so I was actually on a pony when my mom realized that there was something really wrong with my vision. Wow. And then tell me a little bit about, I guess, over the years as you grew up and were riding and now in your amateur career, how does it how does, you know, this obviously impacts your vision? How does it affect your riding? And what is the dynamic like, especially because you were born with this and it's not like there was a sudden instance where things changed? Um, there actually, without giving the book away, Ooh. there actually was, okay. um, there was an instance that I, it is unknown whether mm. or not I would have kept more vision, but there is a, I don't want to give it away, but um, there actually was an instance, but there just weren't many riders who I, I, I had one eye at this point, my left eye, the retina had detached in my left eye. So like it was, it was a dead eye. It didn't work and it never worked very well. So I didn't understand. Um, and I grew up riding with incredible riders. I mean, uh, Mary Lisa Leffler was around mm. junior when I was Katie Huber, when Reed now when Alden, I mean, yeah. just the best of the best. And they would all talk about seeing their distances and spots. And I, I would have no idea what they're talking about, wow. but there must be really something wrong with me. And, um, and I didn't figure it out until I was at a 3d movie with a friend mm. Um and I said, you know, I don't understand why I always get the broken glasses. Mine are always broken and I can't see. And she said, well, of course you can't see 3D. You don't have two eyes. You don't have depth perception. So it wasn't until then wow. that I realized, I was like, oh, well, maybe that's my problem. I, I can stop fine trying to find a distance. I can stop staring at these 3D art things and wondering why nothing's popping out at me. And I can stop going to 3D movies. So, uh, you know, so, um, but it wasn't until I really lost all my vision and started riding again that I realized, okay, maybe you don't need vision so much because that wasn't helping me anyway. I needed feel and I needed a horse that was going to be willing to help. So th those are the two things for me that were so key. What was it like for you once you had lost the vision completely and getting back into riding? Tell, walk me through that adjustment process. Um, it, was, it was, so I went through a time where I didn't ride for uh, almost a year. Yeah. And, um, and I really didn't think I was ever going to ride again. I had, I had a little bit of vision. I could see light and colors and shadow and a little bit of shape, but it just certainly wasn't enough. And so I was forced. I was riding with um, Bob Crandall at the time, and um, and he 
really forced me to get back on. And, um, and I was terrified until I hit the saddle. And the moment I sat down, it was like coming home. And so until the first time I actually showed and had to get around a course, it, it was once I got past the fear and realized I was safer on the horse than I was walking on my own two feet, it was, it was freeing. Um, but then I had to jump around a course and it was disastrous. So yeah, I had to, man, I, had I can't to, even, uh, it was terrible. And, um, and it was funny because everyone was so kind. Most people, there were some people who weren't and, uh, but for the most part to my face, they were celebrating. You did it. You did it. And I thought, yeah, but I didn't do it very well. So, um, I was actually going to give up after the first time I showed and it just went badly. I, I was going to give up, but um, I overheard a couple uh, women, young, young women who were in my division and they were talking about me and they were saying terrible things. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go back and try this again. Wow. So that's actually why I kept at it. Wow. First of all, that's so rude. Um, well, yeah. I mean, you were able to use that for maybe some motivation to I show did. them what's up. I did. <laughs> Which you did. And I did. And so, and, and ironically, I'm actually friends. There were three girls. I'm friends with two out of the three of them now. Wow. So, yeah. Did you ever tell them that you heard them? Oh, yeah. And they know <laughs> they're in the book. And I said, I will not use your name, but this is such a key element. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Yep. So, yep. oh yeah, they know I heard. Oh, so, man. and they were mortified, but you know, sometimes we do and say things when we're young or even sure. older. Sure. Yeah. We wish they could take them back. So I'm actually glad they said them. Mm -hmm. Well, tell me a little bit about Milo and how he came into the picture and talk to me a little bit about what he's like and what kind of impact he has made on you as a person and then you as a rider? Uh, Milo was, now I'm very old. So in 1999, uh, we had really just started importing warm bloods. Mm -hmm. And I had graduated college. I had been in Boston for a year. I had come back home to the Maryland area. And, um, and I was at Columbia Horse Center and Bob Crandall was there. And I had grown up hearing Bob Crandall's name all the time. And, and I just thought, wow, this, this man is the end all be all of trainers and riders. And, and I started working a little bit for him. I was just sort of grooming. I had a horse he was helping me with, uh, just a thoroughbred off the track. And very long story short, he was going to go to Europe and get some, some warm bloods. And he was going with Peter Leone and Val Renahan. And um, I talked to my mom and she agreed to help me buy a horse. And he called me from Europe and, uh, and he just had this, I could picture him glowing. He had this excitement in his voice. And he said, I found this horse. And he said, it is a diamond in the rough, but this is, this is the horse. And so I was so excited. I was going to have a warm blood and, and just, 
over the moon and the horse finally comes in and he was a train wreck. I'm looking at him and he came in with another horse. And it's funny because I realize now I had this weird idea in my head what, what a horse should look like or what this new hunter and the one that he came in with was beautiful and groomed, and but it was clearly more of an equitation type. Sure. But I thought he was magnificent, you know, big neck. And and I looked at Bob and I said, is there any way we can trade? Because people <laughs> don't know it. They won't know. And I'm mm-hmm. here. And and I said, this other one is, it's got rain rot. It, it's trying to kill me as we speak. It is trying to bite <laughs> me. And, um, and he was just, just terrified. I mean, he had spur rubs all over him and whip welts. Oh, he was awful skinny. And, uh, and Bob just said, trust me. And so I said, okay. And I, I thought, well, I guess I better take care of this horse. He's mine. And the one thing I have grown up knowing about horses, when this horse is your horse, it is your job to protect it. You do everything you can to protect the horse your responsibility. So I just began um, taking care of Milo and bringing him treats, which of course he had no idea what a treat was. And he learned pretty quickly, (laughs) uh, very quickly. And so he wouldn't even take treats. I had to chew them up first and give them to him. Wow. Like baby bird feeding. Yeah. And, um, and so eventually I mean, I lived in a stall with him for the first couple of days and wow. I just never left him. And eventually after the first month, he started coming out of his shell and he started to trust me and he trusted Bob, but I was really, Bob really rode him. I, I was not a good rider. Um, I was highly mediocre and, um, and I just, we just started building that bond so early mm-hmm. and it just for it, I, I used to call it the ET bond. <laughs> and, you know, we have the same, we're the same heart. We understand mm-hmm. each other. We don't speak the same language. We don't have to. And um, I just had spent so much time taking care of this horse. Uh, I just knew everything about him, all of his likes and dislikes. It was just really an incredible partnership. And then when it came time for me, I, it was actually my turn to start riding and showing him. Bob had gone through the pre-greens and the first years and it was my turn that's unfortunately right when I lost my vision Hmm. so um and it was Milo getting back on track to your actual question it was a while later that um you know the one that I kept going to as I was waiting for my vision to completely diminish I would just keep on going back to Milo and I would lose all hope and not want to fight anymore. And I would see this horse and somehow I would find the strength to keep fighting and to just keep saying to the doctors who were saying, there's nothing we can do. And I kept saying, you know, there has to be something you can do. You just don't know it yet. You haven't found it, but there is something. So Milo just gave me that strength. And I, I don't know why, but he, it was the way he approached me. It was the way he would breathe in my ear. It was just his warmth. You know, he would always, he would do this funny thing that I've seen a couple of horses do, but he would hang his head over my shoulder and pull me into his chest oh. and trap me there. 
And so it was, um, it was just that bond that made me want to keep going. So what do you think, or have you, I'm sure you've talked to Bob about what he saw in Milo over in Europe that he was like, trust me. and like, so excited about him. Mm -hmm. Bob knew even then that I needed to have a good rhythm. Bob, actually, I don't think many people know this about Bob, but he doesn't really have much depth perception. Hmm. Um, and so he knew that I had to have a good canter. I, I didn't know that. He knew that. And Milo had one of the most phenomenal canters I've ever seen. Um, just whatever it was about this canter, it was breathtaking. And it just was this beautiful flow. It was textbook perfect. And um, I think Bob saw that first. He told me, he said, this horse has been, they've tried to make him a jumper. He does not have the scope to be a Grand Prix horse. He doesn't want to do the open water. Um, and he's been punished for it. And so when he got on the horse, he said he could feel his heartbeat. He said he could just feel it wow. in, like in his leg and the horses, it was just terrified. And, um, but he still did everything Bob asked. He was scared, but he did everything. And, um, and it was the canter. Um, for me, it was, um, I knew that I was going to keep this horse and love this horse. The very first night I saw Milo, obviously he had not been treated well. But I looked at him and he terrified as he was, he had this glow in his eyes. It was this fire in his eyes. And I thought, well, he's a fighter. So uh, that's what I need. I need a horse that is a fighter. And, um, and Milo just had a lot of fight and a lot of love. And it's a great combination. Taking a little break because I am so excited to talk about our sponsor today, Jiv Athletics. Have you heard of them? They provide women the comfort and confidence they deserve within everyday athletic wear, which all starts with what's underneath. Jiv Athletics is an athletic undergarment company that specializes in performance underwear for women. Not only does Jiv Athletics offer ultra premium quality, their undergarments are breathable, wickable, tagless, roll-free, and camel toe proof. Inspired to end constant underwear tugging during a workout or a ride, Jiv Athletics creates undergarment pieces to fit to make wearing yoga pants or breeches all the more comfortable. Using breathable luxe fabrics, this woman-owned brand understands the importance of eliminating unsightly silhouettes with a patent-pending 3D mold spacer that blurs the lines between tech and fashion. I just recently got my first pair of Jiv Athletics underwear and it is the most incredible pair of underwear that I have ever owned. I give all my thoughts and some more information about Jiv Athletics over on my lifestyle page, my equestrian style. But if you want to check out more information and the products that they have, head over to their website at jivathletics.com. That's J-I-V-A-T-H-L-E-T-I-C-S.com. Thank you so much, Jiv Athletics. You are amazing, and I cannot wait to see you more and more in the horse community. Community. All right, let's head back to the episode. 
talk me uh, through a little bit what it's like for you as you were figuring out how to ride Milo and then show him and then find so much success in the ring. Like, I'm I'm just trying to wrap my head around, um, you know, I have great vision and I miss, you know, like everyone misses distances and, you know, like there's so many things that we just take for granted having good vision. So tell me a little bit about the training program and process that you go through and that you went through with Milo to get to such a top level of the amateur division? So like I said, the first time I showed, it was terrible. And, um, and I had to go back to the drawing board and I realized it's not about seeing the fence. It's not about, um, seeing a distance. Mm -hmm. I realized, and I learned this on Milo that um, it is about where you make your turn and your rhythm. And Milo was at this point, um, he was very used to the way I rode. And so he definitely helped me. He would um, listen for signals. He would, and I would listen to signals that he would send me. So we had a great communication but I also learned that I couldn't just, at first I thought, well, I'm just going to ride to the fence that has red flowers. I could see the red flowers. Well, there's a lot of fences that have red flowers. And then on the way to said fence with flowers, there's a lot of space in between. And so I realized that I didn't just have to learn the course and what color these fences were. I had to learn every step. Hmm. And so that's what I did. And I began taking Milo into the ring with me early, early in the morning when we could walk the course. And I would, I wouldn't ride him, but I would walk. He would, I just would lead him around the course and I would pick, I mean, hundreds of these markers. And I just navigated through the course that way. And, um, Milo was, he was awfully, you know, he would sight in on the fence and mm -hmm. I would learn that the minute he sighted in, I would get to the turn that I had planned meticulously and I would knew that I would be on the way to the fence. And I knew Milo would sight in on that fence the moment he flicked his ears forward mm -hmm. and I could feel him pushed from behind and yeah. I knew I was okay. Wow. And so I learned two things, navigate the ring and know your horse mm -hmm. and stay out of his way. Yeah. And that's not true of every horse. He was just you know, he would have done anything for me and he did. So, I mean, that's not to say, even though we did this, I jumped a few oxers backwards. <laughs> so, um, and by that time, Bob had actually taken a private job and I was with Rachel Kennedy hmm. and, um, and Rachel, when I went to Rachel, she said, what are your goals? And I said, I really want to do the amateurs. I've never jumped three sets. And she said, do you see well enough? And I said, no, not at all. <laughs> and she said, well, I'll tell you what, if you are champion at Capital Challenge, win, I think I had to win the, or the NAL and the Washington class. She said, mm -hmm. you can go ahead and do the amateurs. <laughs> and I said, well, forget it. That's not going to happen. Yeah. Well, then of course we did. Of course. So yeah. Well, thank you, Milo, because not a clue. Wow. Um, and the indoor, indoor rings are very difficult for me because they're dry. And, um, my contact lens slips a lot. Oh, wow. So, but, um, but yeah, and, and I, 
I definitely remember going to a fence, my last fence, thinking I have at Capital Challenge going, I have no idea if I'm even lined up correctly at oh all. And I just put my hands up in his mane and kept the rhythm going. Yeah. And it was beautiful. Wow. So, I mean, I was actually out of the ring before I knew that I had jumped the right <laughs> fence. So, wow. you know, a lot has to be said for that, that horse. Um, so that was, that was a lot of my success. I had a phenomenal team. I went from Bob, who was incredible to Rachel, who just set me up to win every time. It came as a great shock when I didn't have Milo anymore that I really wasn't that good. (laughs) I thought, wait a second. I I just won the country. I was unbeatable. Everyone was riding for second. And all of a sudden, oh no. Did you, um, did you end up, because I know at one point in time, Milo was not in your life. Is that um, when you moved up to the three, six? No, I moved up to the three, six on Milo. Okay. And um, I'm going to try and not give away too much, yeah. but um, there was a miscommunication okay. and um, a large sum of money mm-hmm. involved. Mm-hmm. And so I wound up without Milo for three okay. years. So, And you'll have to, uh, everyone will have to read to find out. The yeah, everyone story. will have to read about that <laughs> because it really is pretty amazing how he arrives back in my life. But oh, um, yeah. yeah. But no, it was, it was a, it was a shock when I didn't have him in my life, mm. and I had another horse who I didn't have that bond with, and yeah. it was, it was a surprise. I I remember turning to Rachel and I looked at him and I said, "I'm not that good, am I?" And she said, "Well, no one, I, you know, we know Tori Waters is a phenomenal mm-hmm. rider, and she doesn't have very good vision either. Right, that's um, right. I think we're pretty similar vision wise. Um, but for whatever reason, she stopped doing the bigger. I, she has a family. I don't have. You know, I don't have kids. I I just mm-hmm. um, went and did the three six, and um, and so I really discovered I wasn't I wasn't as good as I thought I was. It it was uh, my trainer my horse, my friends, everything. So I had to start from the beginning again, and it's very difficult. So every horse I get. Tell me a little bit about how you develop relationships with these other horses that you've had in your life. Mm. So after Milo, there was Maddox. And I began with Maddox and I, like I said, that was the first one I looked at Rachel and went, wow, I suck. (laughs) This is horrible. And she said, you know, you know, not many people can do what you do, but you, you know, it does take a lot from the horse and anyone else. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Maddox, uh, I began with Maddox had a great life in Europe and we imported him and I immediately tried to bribe him with food. And, um, Maddox, no matter what I did, would look at me, I would walk into a stall and I'd have apples and he would look at me and say, does my agent know that you're in here trying to give me food? And I would say, Maddox, I am your agent. And yeah. yes, I, so <laughs> it took a long time. Um, Maddox just was, he, he loved to compete and he loved to win. And so I think, and Rachel worked really hard with him and I 
tried so hard just like please love me and um he just wasn't that kind of horse he had a huge ego mm. and um you know and and we had a good bond but it was the competitive bond and he just learned that when we came out of the corner he was going to go forward mm-hmm. and um and when we landed he was going to land on his lead or you know because i with one eye, especially going to the left, I have to turn my whole body mm. to see, and I wind up leaning in which sure. is, you know, for lead changes. Right. So that was a big learning curve with him. It took a while and I did very, I think he won the country as well. Um, wow. But it took, it took a lot. It, it took a lot with him, much more than Milo. I never had that same, um, can you help me out a little bit? Mm-hmm. I, I need help. I don't know where I'm going. I need help. What made you What made you start wanting to write a book about Milo? I actually went to California. I have friends in California who were involved in Hollywood and directing and acting and uh, Carolyn and Joe Sargent. And we got to be very, very close when they were shooting a movie in Baltimore. And Carolyn rode horses. And I would tell them this was actually while Milo was um, the whole story was developing. I was riding Milo when I met them and they knew the story and I would talk to them about it. And Joe Sargent said, you know, this would be an incredible movie or a book and you Mm -hmm. should share this. And I jotted it down for him and we started talking about making it into production. Who could he take it to? And unfortunately, um, Joe passed away and I sat on it for a little bit. And then I met a couple other people in the literary world and they said the same thing. You really need to write this. And, and I did, I started writing it and it was terrible, but I wrote it down and the first three versions were not very good. And then I found a great editor Hmm. and we began again and I wrote it again. And it still wasn't good. And I was trying to get an agent. I was trying to, it's very, very difficult. I had no idea. I knew nothing about publishing and the literary world. And, um, and through it all, Carolyn, who was still my good friend, was still pushing me. And, um, and I put it down for a while. I'd written it so many times. I had been rejected so many times. I put it down for a while. And, and then Milo died. And I needed him I needed to bring him back. I needed him to be, I needed to somehow have this horse in my life. And so I sat down very seriously and rewrote the book and, um, and really dug deep within, which was what the book was really missing. And I just dug and dug and dug until this horse was alive for me again. And, um, and that is, that was the version before this version. So um, I dug and my editor helped me clean it up. And, um, and I just, there were a couple things. I needed the horse to be alive and on pages. I needed to share him with people. Um, I, it was my way of um, letting people know that this horse existed, that my mom existed that Rachel and Bob, you know, what they did for me too, 
because I don't think when there are relationships like that and love and um, ups and downs and success, I think it needs to be shared. Absolutely. And ironically, I was also told by someone that my book, you know, you writing a book is just a joke. So, you know, once again, well, I'll show you. (laughs) What would you say after, you know, everything you've been through, everything you've been able to overcome and, and now that you've been able to, your book is, is coming out. What would you say is an area of the industry that you're really passionate about that you feel like the rest of the equestrian community either just doesn't know a lot about or doesn't talk that much about? Well, I, I watch people, the horse world has changed a lot and I see people now. And I think one of the things that we forget is that these are animals. First and foremost, these are Mm -hmm. animals. And I see every single one of them as being magic. And actually, Bethany, as I told you before, I've actually, um, I've stood, I've stood next to you. You didn't even know. And I've heard you and, (laughs) and every now and then, I will listen to you and, and, and the people that you work with and are surrounded by. And I always think they actually love their horses. And that's a really nice thing. Um, not everyone does that. No, my dog. But not everyone does that. And they forget that they take things very personally. And these are animals. that They are not supposed to be jumping these big sticks. They don't. You know, This isn't what they were made for. They mm-hmm. do this because we ask them to. Right. And each and every horse is beautiful and magical. And sometimes we overlook that because they are also very expensive and they are also competition and we want to win and there's money. So many things go into it, but first and foremost, they are animals and they deserve our love and respect. I totally agree. And I think that for one, obviously, like just what you said, they deserve our respect. They deserve the world for what they do for us and our sport wouldn't exist without them. And, and two, it's, it's so much more rewarding to be a part of a lifestyle where you actually enjoy it and enjoy at the core. Us as equestrians all started riding because we loved horses and it's very easy to get away from, especially I would, I would argue at the top of the sport, um, just kind of like what you were alluding to the finances, the, um, the time commitment, the competition of it all, it really starts some, sometimes it can get easy to see a horse as, you know, like a mode to success instead of a true partnership. And that's definitely, I think a big reason why I love all of my jobs, but I love my training job so much because I work with people who all they want to do all day long is talk about horses, watch horse videos. They, they want to go like, you know, I work with full grown men that want to just go buy donuts and go hang out in their horses stalls and cuddle with them and feed them donuts. And it's like, that is what is it is about. And, um, you can see that I'm glad you've been able to see that too. Um, Yeah, I have. Well, and I don't take anything away from their riding skills because the men that you work with and you yourself ride just phenomenally well. But uh, maybe some of that success is also due to the fact that your horses love you because mm. you love them. 
I mean, that is a big part of it. And I have seen, I have heard you when I was standing next to you that day, you had peppermints in your pocket. I heard the wrappers crinkling (laughs) and there were carrots. And I just thought before I even knew, I thought, what an incredible person. This is, this is my kind of person. And the same thing with Jeffrey, you know, Jeffrey's, I hope it's okay if I mention that's who you work with, but. Oh yeah, absolutely. he, he is phenomenal. And, but the horses, you can see them jumping up and trying their best mm, for him. Absolutely. And, and it's just for me who has, I told you, I have to watch people go around and figure out where the best place is to turn. And he's one of the people. Mm-hmm. So that I really do think that if your horse, if you have a good bond with your horse, they're going to try that much harder. Totally. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for taking the time. Stephanie, this has been such a treat. Thank you. All right. That is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you next week.